0: Here we are at the intersection of yikes and what say you Romans chapter seven, verses fourteen to twenty five. For we know that the that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but the ability to carry it out, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. I'm going to give the title for this theme this morning, Walking in the Law, as opposed to Walking in the Spirit. We'll call this morning, Section of Scripture, Walking in the Law. Uh, Paul is not describing what we should expect to be the normal Christian experience is my main thesis, okay? This is not, and why, and why do I say that? I was listening uh, this week, as I listened to various experiments and these things, I think I was listening to Charles Leader. who was doing some teaching on Romans. If you're not familiar with Charles Leder, you would do well to be familiar with him and to read his book, The Law of Christ. If you want to understand New Covenant theology a little bit better, and if you want to understand the the Law of Christ and what that means, he's got a nice fat book on it. And it's very accessible. And it's got a great section in it for questions and answers and things. But so, as he was teaching through Romans, he at one point had a a gentleman come up and share. He wanted to say, we've got... This gentleman, I think his name Mason, is going to share some things he's gotten from his lessons. He came up to share that he had a very good friend that was a very active in ministry. He was a pastor at one point. He was a missionary. But when he got together with this young man, Mason, he was just in total despair, struggling with this particular sin. And he says, but you know, I read about Paul in chapter 7, and I just have to determine it's just the wretched man that I am. And basically conceded to the point to himself that this is basically as good as it's going to get. In other words, if this is Paul, Paul's experience, then I should expect no more of myself. It's, told, it's a sense of total defeat. And it may be that many Christians, not understanding this passage, take odd comfort from thinking that this is to be expected. And perhaps even to sort of excuse some sin in a sense. Or to be a little too comfortable with it. This entire section is void of the Spirit. There is no talk of the Spirit in this section at all. And that's important. This is, what I would suggest is a description of whoever this person is, and we'll talk about that. This is a person living under law, and therefore living under sin. And Paul has talked an awful lot about that. We're going to look at some more of it. It's not the life that God intends for us who are in Christ, filled with the Spirit, as chapter 8 is, which will give us a nice contrast when we get into chapter 8. We have to remember all the things Paul has been talking about. This is not to say that Christians don't have an ongoing sort of struggle with sin, because, of course, we do. But this is not the focus of this chapter. The focus of this chapter is law and relationship to law. Okay? And Paul is clear on that. Uh, I think, let's take a look at what I would call some of the contextual controls for us to approach these passages and understand them rightly. And I'll just read them off. We keep these passages in mind when we think about what Paul is saying in these verses that we just read. Chapter 6, verse 4. We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Six six, We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 6.11 So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 6.14 For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. 6.17 But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. 6.22 17. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and in its end, eternal life. And then last week as we read chapter 7, verse 6, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. There are others, but those I would say are what I would call the contextual controls for taking into consideration the passage we're in today. Those are the verses we need to keep in mind as we exegete these passages. So who is this describing? Well, it's certainly not describing Paul. Certainly not the Paul of the day that he was writing this. This is certainly not describing Paul in 60 AD or whatever it might have been, 57, 58 AD, whatever it is when he's writing from Corinth. Paul, who wrote Romans 6, what I just read to you, many of those verses. Paul, who wrote Romans fourteen seventeen, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That is not the Paul of 7, 24 and 25. It is not the Paul of chapter 8, verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So, who does this describe then? The believer or the unbeliever? Let me share a couple of thoughts from other scholars that have a lot more uh, academic hours booked. And Doug Moo says, this is Paul looking back from his Christian understanding to the situation of himself and other Jews like him living under the law of Moses. So he was not a New Testament believer. Charles Cranfield, anybody who Charles Cranfield is? Any of you that sort of have been in academic circles a little bit? Well, he was a famous British theologian, died in 2015 at the ripe old age of 104. So since he lived longer than anyone else, that doesn't mean he's right. (laughs) These verses, he say, depict vividly the inner conflict characteristic of the true Christian. A conflict such as is possible only in the man in whom the Holy Spirit is active and whose mind is being renewed under the discipline of the gospel. Both of those have commendable points and a number of other scholars have each taken each one of those points themselves. Okay? John Piper, for example, believes that this is the believer that's being discussed here. I take it very seriously when I disagree with John Piper. Uh, I read yesterday that it was his 74th birthday and he tweeted out that he was going to Dairy Queen as he does every year to get the largest Butterfinger Blizzard he could get and eat every bite of it to the glory of God. <laughs> that's, a, that's a man who's walking in the spirit. <coughs> So, But they both have commendable points, right? Because one picks up on the theme of struggle and the other picks up on the theme of increasing awareness of, of sin and it, it, the, the, the depths of it and the, the hidden little secrets of it. John Stott writes, Neither position is wholly satisfactory. It would be as strange for unregenerate people to want ardently to do what is good as for regenerate people to confess that they cannot. Verses 15 and 19. How can a regenerate person who has been set free from sin, 6.18, 6.22, and 8.2, how can that person, how can a regenerate person who has been set free from sin describe himself still as its slave and prisoner, as he does in 7.14 and 23 to 25? And how can an unregenerate person who is hostile to God's law, chapter 8, verse 7, declare that he delights in it, chapter 7.22? Can we really maintain that all Christians are simultaneously set free from sin and sold as slaves to sin? This is not a tension, but a contradiction. To which I say, amen. So who is he describing? I think that, I'm going to suggest, and I'm going down this road, that he's describing two types of people and potentially a third. Two types of people and potentially three. Now, I'm not engaging here in some sort of textual daytime, Okay, and I'm not... You know, I'm not trying to just sort of spiritually compromise. These are text-driven conclusions that I've arrived at and that obviously I'm not, you know, we all stand on the shoulders of those that have gone before us. There's nothing entirely novel. But there are thoughts that I've come up with and things that I've meditated on that I want to share, things that come out of the text themselves. I think two of the three types would be considered regenerate people. Okay? Now, that might sound like a contradiction because I just told you we're not writing about a believer here in my view, but just stay with me. And I believe one is unregenerate. So three types of people. Two I would consider unregenerate, one I would consider, uh, uh, I'm sorry, two I would consider regenerate potentially, and one unregenerate. All three types, though, all have this in common. They are all thinking and therefore living. They're believing and therefore living because ultimately we always believe, we always always act upon what we genuinely believe. Right? So we may say or profess we believe one thing, but our actions will betray what we really believe. All three types are thinking and therefore living as if they're genuinely still under the law of sin and death that is still under the Old Covenant. Okay? All three types are still living that way as described in this portion of the text. The first one, I think, and this one, I think, commends the most to it, and this actually is uh, this is something John Stott sort of got me thinking about, is that this who's being described here is an Old Testament believer. An Old Testament believer And so I was given some thought to that, and I said, hmm. And a a couple of passages came to mind that I want to share with you. Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 5. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Well, into what then were you baptized? they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So you have groups of believers and disciples that have not even so much as heard of the Holy Spirit. Okay? And then I go over to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. What I'm trying to do here is demonstrate that there are, in that day especially... In this particular time, people that are sort of still tweeners, (laughs) they're in between in some ways. Chapter 8, verse 13. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. It's ready to vanish away. It's still intact for some. And you know, the book of Hebrews was was a big danger of people potentially going back under the old covenant, right? So we have these groups of believers in a sense. I would call them Old Testament believers because they're not walking in the fullness of the ministry of the Spirit yet. But they are certainly Old Testament believers and in that case they're certainly regenerate. Old Testament believers were regenerate. We don't need to parse out, because we can right now, nuance what does it mean that the Holy Spirit wasn't in them, we just sort of came upon them from time to time. Let's just go with what we know to be true. That's something else we could do. So such people existed then. What I would call the Old Testament believer. The second person would be an unbeliever under conviction, perhaps, and being drawn. I say that from verse nine. This is interesting. This verse, the way that this says this. So again, an Old Testament—I mean, sorry—an unbeliever, but sort of under conviction and sort of let's just call it being drawn by the Father, right? Because that's the only way. Wasn't there a book title for that same name out there, "Drawn by the Father"? Sounds like something James White would write, doesn't it? Um, Chapter 9. I'm sorry, verse 9 of chapter 7. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. That's a very interesting way to say it. So this person always had the law, but the commandment one day came to him or her. Isn't that interesting? Okay, so certainly if Paul was referring to himself which I don't believe he is ever referring just to himself. Paul in this chapter is always speaking uh, of self, but identifying himself with the rest of the corporate body, much in the same way that we are all members of Adam or we're all members of Christ, right? We're all in Adam or we're all in Christ. We're either part of the body of sin or part of the body of Christ. So one day the, the commandment came to him or her. And that certainly suggests that it sort of resonated within them in a different way. Something new was going on. So it began to set in. Whether that's the mosaic law or just the law of God revealed to the conscience like in Romans chapter 2. When those who have not the law act in a way that's consistent with the law, they show that they're a law unto themselves. If they have conviction going on, they have conscience going on. Okay, so in either way, we have conviction. We have the person beginning in the process, perhaps, of being drawn. Okay? And then the third type of person potentially is a gospel believer trying to use the law to be sanctified rather than walking in the new way of the Spirit. Okay, They continue in a sense to go back to the law, to go to the law. Calvin wrote about such a one. Now Calvin wrote about the threefold use of the law, so-called. I think that, uh, and many others think as well, particularly New Covenant people, that we should never make a distinction between the ceremonial the uh, civil and the moral parts of the law because Scripture doesn't break them out that way. In some ways, it was helpful the way Calvin discussed those, but ultimately, I think it falls short. But Calvin had said, discussing the so-called third use of the law, quote, this is in the believer's life, the law acts like a whip to the flesh, urging it on as as men do a lazy, sluggish ass. Even in the case of a spiritual man, inasmuch as he is still burdened with the weight of the flesh, the law is a constant stimulus, <clears throat> pricking him forward when he would indulge in sloth. I think that is a significant error with all due respect to John Calvin. Right? Because for the New Testament believer, the law is never the stimulus. The law is never our stimulus. The Spirit is the stimulus. The Holy Spirit is the stimulus that, that awakens us from slothfulness. I read a tweet this morning. I don't want to get into personalities and issues that come up because you know Twitter is crazy, but Beth Moore... And if you're familiar with sort of the Southern Baptist sort of ongoing sort of battle with Beth Moore that came up with, you know, should women be preachers. But she had tweeted out something like, in the church now, there's so much. I just saw this this morning, so I'm not remembering very well, I'm sure. There's so much slander and gossip and everything going on in the church. And she wrote, when the church repents, then we'll begin to see the work of the Holy Spirit again. And I said, no, the Holy Spirit is going to move and create repentance in people and then you'll see an end to the the lining and the gossip and the slander and everything else now it will be through the ministry of the word right so I think that um, because nobody is right on everything uh, I I, I just think that Calvin was I've come to to, I'm in a position where I think Calvin was wrong in thinking of the law in that way I think also we see the language Paul is using I throughout this entire context talking like himself I, I, I and I think Paul's using that language to minister and to win over those under the law. 1 Corinthians 9.20 And and I realize that this is, you know, this is packed today. We're getting, you know, we're getting, we've got to pack 30 pounds of theology into a 10-pound bag, but uh, I'm trying to make it accessible and succinct and give you specific points that you can sort of gnaw on. I got one of those awesome... Um, I got a, got a nasty burn in the process of doing it, but I had this ribeye steak this week, you know? Bony and ribeye. And I just love gnawing on that grizzly fat at the bone, you know what I mean? Just like a dog, you know? And this, we need to be like scripture. We need to be like a dog on a bone with this stuff. Just getting at that grizzle close to the bone with a tasty fat is... First Corinthians 9.20, he says... <clears throat> excuse me. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I would win those under the law. And if you recall a moment ago, I said to you that I believe that of these, what I would consider potentially three types of people, each one of them is acting as if they are still under law. So I think Paul is just sort of role-playing a little bit here. And he's taking the position of the person that would be in that because there are a number of all three of those people would be in the hearing of this letter, all three types for sure. Perhaps even the, just like a genuine uninterested unbeliever because all types of people show up in churches. And I'm sure in those days I don't know if they had invite a friend day, but people went to church. You know, they went to people's homes. It was, so I think that um, what we have is Paul taking that sort of position there so that he would be accessible to people so that they would understand so that he could relate and that they could relate to him it's a very pastoral way to, to do it as well and that I I think also is it's like in isolation of the spirit it's like he talks to I myself and he's talking in such a way of without the church I mean without the spirit and certainly without a church or without a community of believers that would be building people up in the truths of the faith okay this is why healthy church is so important. So I think Paul is just sort of assuming that position and maybe certainly even experienced some of those things himself when he was under the law. Okay? because Certainly he knew what that felt like. Because he said that he, he felt the power of do not covet. He felt that provoked sin in him. brother. But you
1: want to classify all pre-converted people, Jews particularly, who were under law like lifestyle, that they would all be in this category?
0: I don't know if I understand your question. How many different types of Jews were they?
1: Well, keep talking. I'll get back to it. Okay.
0: Uh, I mean, it, there were certainly Jews that were... It's just like there might be in our day, there might be people that go to church that really aren't interested at all. I'm sure there would be Jews that were... Uh, but every Jew was certainly under the law. I what
1: I'm saying is could, could someone be under the law and yet still have these prompts <coughs> to want to do good? Of course. Naturally. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah.
0: Oh, I think that was, I think that was typical of a person under the law. I think I think many people under the law, and we'll talk about that in a minute. We see that throughout the Psalms, we see that in the lives of many Old Testament saints that desire to want to do good. Okay. Um, so P- Paul has made the point that the law is good, and that the problem is with sin in people. Right? He's made that point repeatedly, and he makes it some more here. The law exposes sin. The law exploits that problem. The law condemns sin. The law brings wrath. All these points of Paul has made. However. The New Testament believer has died to that. That was the whole point of the first part of Romans we looked at. The New Testament believer, the the person in the gospel, the person in Christ in whom the Spirit of God dwells, has died to the law. It has died to that to that effect. It is Paul has made that poignantly in the first parts, in a lot of chapter six, which said it was no longer under sin, but under grace. And in chapter seven, no under law, no longer under law. Okay? So Paul's teaching people who are still living, though, as if they are under the law. Setting up for the believer's ministry of the Holy Spirit that's going to get picked up in the next chapter. This is the in-between chapter. This is the in-between living under grace, and life in the Spirit, and Paul having to deal with law because he's saying a lot of things about law that some Jews would, at this point, be standing on their heads over, right? Because to to the Jew, the law was everything. And yet... It was everything, but it was also a constant reminder of their condemnation. You remember the law was given on Mount Sinai with a fire and smoke and trembling and shaking. And and they said, tell God not to talk to us anymore. So God wrote it down on stone tablets instead. Yes.
1: I wanted to um, recall, and maybe you can correct me or or not, um, that you said um, this portion of Scripture... Um, doesn't have much to do with uh, spiritual things or it doesn't
0: mention the Holy Spirit at all except in verse six where it contrasts the the way of the lead to the way of the spirit
1: okay um, <coughs> well my question is is do you have any um, explanation of, of verse 14 the ver- the first word, verse you read mm-hmm. um, saying that the um, the law
0: is spiritual mm-hmm. So how could the law not be spiritual? That's a different thing than saying the person has the spirit in them or that the person is under the influence of the okay. Holy Spirit. One, again, because Paul himself makes that point when he talks about them being under the old way of the letter. So that, of course the law is spiritual. I mean, it's the heart and mind of God, right? It's As I mentioned last week, Doug Moo describes the law as a transcript of God's character. Remember, it's not the law that dies. It's not the law that's bad. It's it's us and the way that we relate to the law, particularly the Old Testament... Uh, Jew. What's another reason why it's hard. 2,000 years removed of just gospel ministry. So, we observe in these verses then, what I want to look at as we go through them is, is how either of these three types potentially are being described. Okay, How do these verses... Does this, does this look like an Old Testament believer? Or could this look like an Old Testament believer? Could this look like an Old Testament... Or just an unbeliever being drawn, convicted? Could this potentially look like a New Testament believer, and all the potential legalistic, fundamental, independent, Baptist churches out there. okay, That kind of thing. Or or legalism in our own lives. Or in our own lives, thinking that we can continue to go to the law, that that somehow is going to sanctify us as long as we keep repeating the law to ourselves. Okay? Now I don't suggest that I'm going to resolve every tension for us. I think these are very useful categories for thinking through these verses. And above all, I think... To steer us away from thinking of the law as a means of sanctification, because it's not. Mm-hmm. We do not go to the law for sanctification. Mm-hmm. Okay, we can't get sanctification there. Yes.
1: Christ Jesus said He came to fulfill the
0: law. Yep, He sure did. And when He puts His Spirit in us, that's what Romans chapter eight is all about. Yes.
1: I'm just as you're going through this. I'm just thinking about this and saying, could is this not really? A believer remembering what their situation was before they became a believer, and uh, considering you know their state of, their state of mind at that point, and and as he's you know describing it in great detail. Well, that's
0: exactly what Doug Moo said. That's why that's how I quoted Doug Moo. Doug Moo believes this is Paul looking back on his sort of pre Christian life. That's why I made it a point to say that even if that is the case, this is certainly not Paul describing his life at the point. time of his writing. Right. This is not 57 AD or whatever Paul saying, this is me today. It could have been. But again, I think the bigger point is Paul's identifying, as I mentioned last week, it was very common Hebraic practice to think of oneself as part of the large body so that when you spoke, this this happened in the Psalms as well. But if you recall in Psalm 22, when we talked about Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every Jew would know where that was going. Every Jew would know that, there was, that that was moving towards a place of celebration and everything else. So every, and Jews would recite that same thing to themselves over and over again. So the individual identified with the larger corporate body through a number of varied experiences. So I think even for Paul to be talking about himself in that, he's not doing it just as himself. Again, he's doing it in a way that is instructional and he's trying to relate specifically with Jews. He's connecting with Jews at the point of the law in particular. Which, as I said last week, also is somewhat of a prophylactic so that the New Testament believer isn't persuaded by Jews to come under the law as Paul fought that his entire ministry. His entire ministry, Paul had to fight that. Everywhere he went, he, he came across that. Constantly. Um, so, verse 14. Uh, let's, let's go through some of the verses. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold of the sin. No New Testament believer can any longer be said to be sold under sin. Plain and simple. The Scripture is clear on having died to the law and having died to sin. That's chapter 6. Okay? We are no longer sold under sin. Now, the Old Testament believer could say it as, uh, as well as could a convicted unbeliever because of the way that they related to the law. If you are under law and not under grace, then you are likely to be dominated by sin. Okay? you are likely to be remember too Hebrews tells us that in the old covenant it could not remove the guilty conscience it couldn't cleanse the conscience from guilt verses 15 to 16 and I'm not doing every nuance of every verse Uh, it says for I do not understand my own actions for I do not do what I want but the very thing I hate now if I do what I do not want I agree with the law that it is good so again notice that the law is the point of comparison the law is the point of comparison. So a constant reflection on the law, which is the way Jews live, constantly reflecting on the law, which is both. And you see Paul experiencing this great tension and this great problem with this, because the law brings wrath. The law does all the things that it talks about throughout the Scripture. Uh, the law exposes sin. The law does all these things, even for the New Testament, uh, for the Old Testament. I'm sorry, believer. Okay. So it's a very law centered passage. And the law gives no power to resist sin's dominion. The law does not give any power to resist sin's dominion. Okay? And, and even so, any of us can relate on some level still with what's going on, right? We know at times we want to do good but don't. I'm not, I'm not excluding that possibility. And I'm not saying there aren't other scriptures to talk about that because there are, particularly in Galatians, which by the way is also a great book on how do we deal with the law. But in Galatians, ultimately, the Spirit wins out. The Spirit wins out in the law. Because why he says, so that you can't do the things that you would. It's the Spirit there that prevents you from doing the evil that you would want to do. Paul, crediting the Spirit there, not the person's commitment to the law. The problem in 1720, we'll see again. So, now it is no longer I who de- do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but, the, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. That's an awful lot, right? And who can't, in some ways, again, yeah, there, is, there are certain ways that we can relate to all of this. I've got to keep driving this point home. I'm not saying we don't experience these tensions. What I'm saying is the law is not the place where we go for resolution. And in this chapter and in this text, Paul is talking to people and instructing people who consistently are going to the law for resolution to these things and they will not get it. They will end up being the wretched man of verse 24. Following the law brings you to the place of feeling hopeless despair and wretchedness. And we'll talk about well, why does he cry out to Christ then at that point as well. So, he talks about desire, and that was your question, Gary. You I have the desire to do what is right. And quite frankly, I think a lot of people can have a desire to do what is right. We have such absolutism when it comes to talking about things sometimes. When we say that, you know, only God alone is good and all that. There are plenty of people that want to do good things. It's impossible that a person created in the image of God cannot want to do good things. It's, in our, it's, in our, it's wired into us. Everybody wants that. Jesus said, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So sometimes we have to be careful in our absolutism that we don't exclude the reality that people are created in the image of God and very capable of performing acts of good, high moral character and loveliness and beauty and adoration and, and wonderful things. Because there are. okay, There are in our... And sometimes our resistance to that just comes from our sense of law, right? Yeah, but they do bad. Yeah, but, yeah, they do. But they're made in the image of God. We're all made in the image of God and all quite capable of doing marvelous, wonderful, beautiful things. Yes. All right, Kelly. Yes.
1: I think of Francis Schaefer. Yeah. Pointing out the arts.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. He did a great job in that, you know. Uh, Francis Schaefer, the apolo- great, Christian, great Christian apologist and philosopher. Um, yes Gary
1: Acts 28 when they uh, land on the uh, uh, island of Malta yes uh, among barbarians yes it says that they showed that the, the people on the ship yes shipwreck came on on shore it says that the islanders showed them extraordinary kindness
0: yes exactly thank you for that and interesting too isn't it in that verse uh, Gary that um, get rid of this here sorry these little obnoxious things that pop up on your computer don't they realize <laughs> I've got dominion um, this, remember also at, at that place when Paul got the viper latched onto his hand and what did they say now these people didn't have the law but they said oh he must have committed some awful crime and now he's paying justice is having its way with him they had no exposure to the ten commandments or the law of God at all Ken like
1: hmm. watch the news and look at political matters and so on and so forth and, and there's many things that I disagree with but
0: it seems apparent to me that because of people's worldview, mm-hmm. because of their uh, inclination to look to the law, whatever that might mm-hmm. be, and however they might see it, that they intend good, or they part. there's a part of them that wants to do good as they sure. see it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this food Pharisees out there. We encounter them all the time. I mean, I've worked with some people that, there's one that always has to comment, why, well, you know how many carbs are in that? <laughs> right? Or, you know, it's like, that's why diets are such the way they are. It's just a form of food legalism. Not, not that there isn't healthy foods, but there are food Pharisees all over the place. Right? Well, Nutrition Pharisees. I mean, tell
1: if somebody knows good from bad, if they're to fight it or right. lie about it, yeah. they know it's
0: not good. Well, the, it's funny how, like, this sense of, how does the law operate in our lives? What is the law of law? Right? What's the, how does that, it shows up in just so many weird ways. Um, so we have this, I, want the, uh, I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Interesting, isn't it? Scripture says whoever keeps on sort of sinning or who makes it a regular practice, better watch out, man. That's not a kingdom-bound person. But if I do, if I do, not, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Okay. Uh, I, Stott makes it a good point of saying the nothing, good, the nothing good alludes to the inability to turn his desire into action. That's what the nothing good is. I desire to do this, but I can't. That's because there's nothing in me that can turn this desire into action, brother. This is you were getting to this a little bit ago when you said, do you think that there were people in the Old Testament believers that wanted to do good? Yeah. I think plenty of people want, want to do good. And even, and even, I think some, again, because of the image of God in us, it's a different, it's a different thing. To try to understand what does that mean when you're an old testament believer and you don't have the Spirit of God indwelling you, even though if for a time he would come upon you, like when the scriptures were being inspired, or you know, Samson who was a wretch, <laughs> wasn't he? But the power of the Spirit would come upon him to accomplish God's work. Flesh. How do we understand that word flesh? I mentioned last week the flesh is used four or five different ways in Hebraic thought, okay? It can mean four or five different things given the context that it's in. But in this particular situation, it's either like the fallen condition of the unbeliever or, or, or for the unspiritual or the without the indwelling Holy Spirit of the Old Testament believer. So I think either one of them could experience this. Okay, I think that um, for the person that doesn't have the Spirit of God dwelling in them, they don't have the ability to do. You know, Look at the man after God's own heart, David, and the horrible things that he did. It could also describe the legalist. The one thinking that somehow the law sanctifies. He's not going to find that in there. He's not going to find in there the power to not do. It could be in some sense the unbeliever under conviction thinking that he or she must get the immoral act together. Right? So as good as the law is, of course, it can't help them. But you know, you may remember this yourself when you started to feel the stirrings maybe and the promptings of something going on in your conscience. Um, as Scripture says in Romans chapter two, the constancy, the bearing witness, excusing, accusing, etc., etc. Right? Don't need the Spirit of God living in you for that to happen. But what he's saying here is uh, what, what I'm suggesting too is that the legalist, and as well as the unbeliever under convictions, again thinking that, why well, I got to get my act together. I got to stop doing this. I got to stop doing this. I got to do better. That's a very subtle form uh, that can lead into. That's, how, that's what Jehovah's Witnesses capitalize on, and, and others as well. Sabbatarians. Okay? People that are under this, under the law still. They're still living as if they are under law. Still living as sort of prisoners. And notice the repetition. Sin dwells in me. Nothing good dwells in me. Sin that is dwelling in me. See, sin is a power, right? It's, and Satan can take advantage of that as well. In fact, there are those scholars that sort of capitalized the word sin at various points in the letter of Romans because it's a I think it's a little like a personal pronoun for Satan himself or the accuser um, so it, it's a power and we know that Satan holds what, you read the passage last week when you were giving your message we're, we're, we're talking about the servant of God must be patient able to teach right Uh, And and, and correcting in humility, in in humility correcting those who oppose the truth. If peradventure, as the old King James says, God may grant them repentance, right, and they may recover their senses, what having been taken captive by the devil, right, to do his will. Jesus said he came to set free the captives, to set them at liberty. Colossians says that they were once in the in the domain of the, the kingdom of darkness; they were taken into the kingdom of the Son of His love. So it's an enslavement and there's a power that sin has, which the law takes advantage of. The law exploits, the law brings out. As Paul has made the point so well. So imagine a believer still going to the law and not understanding, you know, not walking in the spirit. Not walking in the spirit. We don't have time to get into all the what that all means, walking in the spirit. Paul talks about in Galatians and other places it comes up as well. But it's living the spiritual life. You know, on the days that I preach, my wife always reminds me, take a couple of ibuprofen beforehand, because I get a headache every time I preach. When I preach by three, four o'clock in the afternoon, I have a splitting headache. So she always reminds me, take that ibuprofen this morning, Pat. The person walking in the spirit is always taking that ibuprofen ahead of time. You know what I mean? So so as to ward off either the strength or the enslavement of the headache later. The person walking in the spirit is he's a spiritual person a spiritual man a spiritual woman concerned about spiritual things meditating on God thinking about God fellowshipping with the saints all of those things so that our affections are on things above so that it just sort of becomes natural in a sense to not want to do those things versus oh no I can't, shouldn't do that oh no I'm I'm under obligation to not sin that's law language and that can't do anything but enslave you because it can't set you free it can only frustrate you Galatians 5.22, right? When Paul is talking, he's contrasting the, the deeds of the flesh and the deeds of the Spirit, right? In 5.22 where he says... Um, oh, no. Yeah. Hold on.
1: Sorry.
0: Yeah, yeah. I was, I was still in Hebrew, from so my, uh, my last verse... So he says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Interesting part of verse. Against such things there is no law. Well yeah, Paul says that, you know? Well of course there is. I mean, there's no law against being kind. There's no law against being patient. There's no law against being good. The point of that is the law can, you know compared to the spirit, the law can't do anything like this. There's, there's no law that compares to this, Paul says. It's just the fruit of the spirit. The law can't produce that. The law can't produce that. And I think that's something what Paul is in touch with here as well. Again, doing it. As that person representing, perhaps in the past, both himself, knowing full well, I mean, Paul could truly identify with being an Old Testament believer. Paul was blameless according to the law, wasn't he? Blameless. He fulfilled it in every respect, and yet he was miserable. So miserable that he could, his mind was so twisted, but twisted up by it, that he put, he, he wanted to put to death, that he persecuted the Lord Jesus legalistic people will eventually in some ways persecute the church. Hurt it. Bad. The point is, of course, again, the law cannot produce these things. Verses 21-23 to So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Now again, to some extent we can relate with that, right? Sometimes we want to do good. Things may come against us. The enemy may try to stop us. Other people that are unspiritual may want to make fun of the way we do things, right? So whether it's coming from external or internal, sometimes we might have those contrary desires still. So we can certainly relate to that. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. No believer can, no spirit-filled believer can say that. By the way, different use of the word law here. Paul gets so when he says here so I find it to be a law he's not talking obviously about the mosaic law at that point we use the word law like the law of gravity right it's sort of an operative principle there's a principle at work here Paul is saying he says when I find it to be a law I said there's a principle at work here this is axiomatic he says there's an axiom here that describes what's happening that a person under law especially for a person under law evil will be close at hand because the law cannot perfect or protect in fact in fact if you recall, we mentioned this last week. It was God's first command to Adam that gave the enemy an opportunity to go get him. Before God gave that command to Adam, the enemy couldn't do anything. But once God gave that command, Paul's, as Paul said, sin seizing the opportunity, mm. sprung into action. Right. So, uh, and, and there's no sort of protection there. You know, speed limits. Speed limit signs do not prevent prevent people from speeding. Right, Speed limit signs, right, Ken? <laughs> Ken's job depends on this. <laughs> Ken's, this is, people breaking the speed limit is part of Ken's job security. I've people at work sometimes, they'll call me to fix something on their computer and be like, sorry to bother you. And I say, what do you mean? You've got to break stuff. You keep breaking it because I need this job, you know. <laughs> speed limits are good things. But every time we see one, do we slow down? Or is it more likely that we say to ourselves... I know that there's like a five mile an hour grace period that the police give. Right? So, the point is the law can't, that, that speed limit can't do anything to limit your speed if you're a person that's just going to, you're, your, you're on your way, you're doing your thing. This is why we get aggravated in traffic, because everyone's not the same kind of driver I would be in their situation. If I was them, I wouldn't be driving that way. If you ever want to find out how much self idolatry you have, drive for two miles. So, so I'm thinking of this. Uh, you know, I find it to be a law, a principle that when uh, I want to do right, evil is right there. I delight in the law, the law of God in my inner being. Look at Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law! That's an Old Testament believer there. Oh, how I love your law! And then in verses uh, 14 to 16 of Psalm 119, he says, um, uh, the, the psalmist says. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Right? He says, I will meditate on your precepts. I will fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Okay? But there's nothing in that that's going to guarantee the doing of it. Nothing at all. There's no power in that to sort of generate that. And we know that to be true. Okay? So, an unbeliever could come to see that the law is beautiful and lovely. Listen, you don't have to be a believer to recognize beauty and to recognize goodness. Why do I say that? How many non-Christians revere Jesus as a great moral teacher? A lot of them. They recognize good, high moral character. They recognize beauty. I mean, there are plenty of art critics and movie critics out there. that give these sort of in-depth reviews of movies and they, they recognize personal... Uh, You know what goes on inside a person. They recognize the human character. They recognize the human nature. They understand love. They understand all kinds of things that they can recognize. They are not unbelievers are not blind to beauty. Unbelievers have made fantastic works of art. They've made wonderful music, right? They've done all kinds of things. So why wouldn't an unbeliever even be able to recognize beautiful things in God's law, right? An unbeliever could say that how wonderful is your, is your law. And especially an Old Testament believer could say that. Especially an Old Testament believer could delight in the law because that was God's gift to the Jews. In, in a way that was some say that that was like God's wedding gift to them on Mount Sin- Sinai when they made the contract when God made the covenant and took Israel to be his bride. Okay. <clears throat> Even though for a regenerate Christian a born-aben person. We know the power of temptation when we want to good, don't we? When we want to do good, it does happen. We, we can certainly experience that. But when tempted to covet, what do we do? Do we recite the law to ourselves? Right? Thinking that we'll be punished if we give in or we'll suffer if we do? That's going to the law. Do this and live, do this and die. So we covet we say, Oh, thou shalt not covet with this fear that, you know, God's going to get us. That's living under the law. Or you're tempted to check out a man or a woman's backside when they go by. Do you say to yourself, oh, whoever looks upon a woman uh, to lust after they adultery, is that going to resolve it for you? Now, you might be able to use that in a sense. You might be able to say, so there's no power in that itself. We could certainly, I suppose, at those moments, right, say, Lord, I know what you said about this. I'm on your side on this. You know what I'm saying? Because, yeah, the challenge is, is often going to present itself. But we don't just sort of quote commandments to ourselves to get out of temptation. Now you might say, "Oh, well, what did Jesus do in the desert? Jesus quoted the Word of God. Yeah, what does it say about Jesus before he went in the desert? He was filled with, Spirit. filled with the Holy Spirit. So it's one thing to be filled with the Holy Spirit and, and, and sort of, and then the law, in a sense, just becomes you know it, I don't want to get into the right use of the law, but certainly one of the right uses of the law would be internally we just acknowledge its goodness and beauty and want that to be the case or the spirit in us is producing that which is reflected in the moral moral character of God, but there's no power in just quoting those things to ourselves. Now here's the law in verse 23. Again, being used the same way he just used law a minute ago. I see in my members another law, waging war against. So I, need, I see this other principle at work in me, well, waging waging war against the principle of my mind. So you get these contrary things going on. Okay, contrary principles at work, which the which the mosaic. Uh, covenant cannot resolve. The Mosaic law cannot resolve these tensions, and it's another reason why this is not a believer walking in the Spirit, because since such a one is not captive to the law of sin. Eight two. Someone will take that next week. The law of the Spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And here he says, right here, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Can't be. <clears throat> Could be an unbeliever under conviction again, right? Or an Old Testament believer without the indwelling spirit. And then we get this word members here. And this is a very tricky word, how we translate this. Because there's a danger here. We need to be careful, and I've mentioned this before, trying to exaggerate this. Because it can't be that the immaterial mind or soul is fully redeemed and good to go. But that we have this, this thing happening in our bodies that is bad. That's the kind of Greek thinking that led to uh, uh, Gnosticism. Right? And docetism. What's docetism? Or what docetism? Brother, you probably know. Does anybody else? Um,
1: an appearance of having the flesh.
0: Or... Yeah, see, Jesus didn't really come in the flesh right. because Jesus would never take on the flesh because flesh is bad and spirit is good. It's in some ways related to Gnosticism because they thought in those terms. They thought of the flesh as bad and corrupt but that the mind of the soul was not. And that's not the sort of dualism that takes place in us. We are integrated whole entire beings. So yes, we do feel sin in our bodies. We can feel temptation. Uh, we, when we experience lust, we can feel uh, 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 corrupt arousal. When we feel anger, we can get uh, adrenaline and tension and all that stuff. But it's the whole integration of the mind and the body together working. You can't divide those two things that way. So what Paul is not saying here is, hey... In my deep soul, I want to, but there's something else going on in my, in my members of my body. Uh, it, it could be that, again, Paul is, because he's making that, okay, I'm Paul the individual, but I'm speaking in terms of the corporate experience of the people of God. And this would require us thinking back to little to chapter 5, where you've got the body of sin versus the body of Christ. Okay, The body of sin versus the body, the body of sin is the unbeliever. The unbelieving body is the body of sin and there are members of that body just as in Christ we have members of Christ's body and Paul uses that specific language back in chapter 5 again we often think again because we think so ruggedly individually the sort of members of the body is always referring to our own individual physical bodies when Paul is making a point to Jews and Gentiles corporate peoples in a corporate body with a particular Jewish problem and in some cases a particular Gentile problem so again we've got to fully grasp and understand all these things? No, but I am giving us some sort of categories of thought that can help us when we exegete passages like this that don't get us tripped up in some of the ways that we've thought in the past which lead us to believe, well, this is just the average Christian experience. This is what we can expect because it's not. I don't believe the text affords that. Although some do. Or it could just be Paul's way, again, of trying to use this, um, of talking about the conflict between desiring and not being able to act on those good desires. He's just using some kind of language. I, I, I desire it, but I, I don't have to get up and go for it. So he might just be using some sort of, again, some rhetorical device there to just sort of communicate in yet another way, because he's exhausting, I think, as many ways as he can to communicate to people, thinks about the law, and then he's going to get into chapter 8, thinks about the spirit. This wouldn't be a great ending if he didn't get into chapter 8. And this is sandwich right in between chapter 6 where, hey, you are under grace, you know the law, you no longer understand. Sin will not have dominion over you. All that stuff. This is not that person. And then he says in verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Wretched man. Now, this could certainly be said by the unbeliever under conviction of sin. It's like the addict who sees his condition and just can't do anything about it. Powerless. The, 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 the command or the, 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 the suggestion, just don't drink. Sounds wonderful. But there is no ability at all to stop that. None. And if you've ever been a drug addict, you know that. Or if you've ever been a food addict, or a sex addict, or a money addict, or a mirror addict, or any number of other addicts, you know that. You know what the command would, sort of would be. If you could create a command that says, Thou shalt not be intoxicated, that's a wonderful command. I mean, it's a wonderful command. Look at all the, the good things that can come from not being intoxicated and addicted. No power there to help. This sounds an awful lot like the penitential Psalms. This old wretched man. Think of Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a great example. But Psalm 51 is not a prayer that a New Testament Testament gospel saint would ever pray. I would never pray that prayer. I mean, I can recognize in it the, the desires and things like that, but I would never pray, take not your spirit from me, create me a clean heart. I have all of that. I have all of it. I never lose any of that. It doesn't take away from the sense of uh, the good things that are in that psalm. Right? And we can, So we can relate to it. Um, I think the Old Testament believers then can clearly see themselves as this. How about, how about Psalm 6? Psalm 6 is a prayer of a man under the law. This is a prayer of a man under law. O oh Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me. Heal me. My bones are troubled. Uh, deliver me. Uh, for in death there's no remembrance. I'm weary with my moaning. I'm drenched. My eyes waste because of grief. Depart from you know. That's not a prayer, that it? That's not that's a prayer of a person under law. Yes. How about lead us not into temptation, but
1: deliver us
0: from evil. Oh, we have to ask the Pope about that one. He changed yeah. that prayer, didn't he? Did he? <laughs> yes, he did. Awesome. Uh, we have, no, go ahead. But what's because your point? The Bible is yes. To us as yes.
1: Jesus. So, so
0: Jesus mm-hmm. is talking to a group of people before the outpouring of the Spirit. So he's talking to Old Testament believers first and foremost, right? The apostles had asked him to teach him Yep. Yep. Again, the body. Right. So, so a a group of uh, again, Old Testament believers, still under the law. Um. But I mean, certainly we would all want to be prayed. However, that we that's a complex verse. Lead us not in temptation. Lead us not because God doesn't tempt anybody, right? We can't parse that prayer out right now, but it's a good question. But I think that that resolves a little bit of tension just right there. If you understand, you're still talking about people under the law. The body of death versus the body of Christ. Again, this can't be just the physical body. Who will deliver me from this body of death? I think this is him talking about, who, how do I get out of this environment? How do I get out of it? What is this? You know, Again, we see in Colossians, don't we? He transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Or... It could be a sort of a way, you know, in First Corinthians, Paul 15, Paul talks about the difference between the natural and the spiritual body. Even as believers, we have the natural body still. So he talks about the spiritual body, which is a different kind of body, but not just a physical body, but our whole... Look, it's not as if our mind has been completely renewed. And You know, we have to be careful we don't think, I'm saved in my mind, but not in my body yet. We can't think that way. We have a lot of deliverance yet to happen in our, in our intellect, in our emotions, in our body, in everything, right? Just as outwardly, every one of us bears witness to the fact that we don't have gloriously resurrected bodies. And inwardly, it might be a little less conspicuous, but we all have unresurrected spirits and bodies at this point. So Paul could sort of be referring to it in that way as well. The New Testament saint has died to the law of sin and death. We have died to the law that says you must feel this way about your relationship to God. And so then he says, you know, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. It's not supposed to be the cry of the saint. This is stuck in sin's power. This is still a slave to the law. This is still a person under captivity to the law. Who comes to find out, of course, that Christ is the answer for the person in this predicament. That's why Paul says it. This is why he sets up chapter 8, Life in the Spirit. This is Paul's shout to those living under the law. Again, whether that's the Old Testament believer or the, un- or the uh, unbeliever under conviction, even for the New Testament saint that's got to be reminded that it's living as if they're under the law. And that was a real possibility again then and now. It's something that Paul, as I mentioned, dealt with constantly. Constantly. In many cases, they were genuine believing Jews that thought you had to become a little more Jewish to be a complete Christian. They weren't just unbelieving Jews. They, weren't, they were born-again Jews that still had it wrong. And then again, Paul says here, I myself. And again, I think this is another rhetorical device that Paul is using to talk about the person without the Spirit. I, myself. Without the church. You know, sort of living in that way. No gospel saint serves the law of God in their mind. And they don't serve the law of sin. The New Testament saint has died to both sin and the law, as Paul has repeated again and again. And so now Paul is ready to go to the 8th chapter and talk about the ministry of the Spirit, which is a much better way. Bearing in mind the last thing I'll mention is Romans 7, 6. The key verse I mentioned last week. The text presents us in verses 14 to 25 with those who have either not been released from the law or those who are living as if they have not been released from the law. It's the old way of the written code. And that may describe some Christians, And the text is not telling us that this is what the normal Christian life looks like. In fact, it tells us just the opposite. Chapter 8 is all about the second part of verse 6, which is serving in the new way of the Spirit and how that's possible. Randy, we just sprinted to the finish. So, throw a glass of water in our face and revive us. One is the Spirit is supplying all of our grace, all of our health, all of our hope, everything. Whereas the law is just demanding and demanding and demanding. The, laws, the law demands the spirit supplies, <laughs> and you can listen to it online. There's a lot. I
1: asked Gary, can you read it? it. I
0: mean, you yeah, I mean, The problem is that already scheduled. Yeah, you and, and talk about that. No, I'm but sorry, that requires a little bit more to, you
1: know, Again, people with different capacities to learn and yeah. follow in here.
0: <laughs>
1: or as I'm speaking,
0: slow down. Oh my God, you're getting so fast. Emplified. But, uh, I don't know, just in time... <laughs> so much in hour i got to go all right oh, thank you